Welcome to the Local Talks podcast, episode one, Building with Earthbugs. Welcome to the first episode of the Local Talks podcast. I am your host, Sarah Kukiri This is the podcast where we have conversations about green design. So if you're interested in and passionate about green design, architecture, and construction in East Africa, then thank you for joining us. You are in the right place. Our first episode is actually a live recording of our first Local Talks event, which took place on 18th June 2020. It was broadcast live as a Zoom webinar and shared live on Facebook too. The entire event took three hours, but we're only going to share the first hour or so with you. This involved a presentation and a Q&A. For the rest of the event, which was largely visual and involved a site walkover and an earthbag filling and compacting exercise, please head over to the Local Works YouTube channel. Hi everyone, welcome to the first Local Talk session. We're so excited that you're here physically and virtually through Zoom and Facebook. My name is Sarah Kukirizandagire and I am a graduate architect and today I'll also be your moderator. So before introducing our speakers, I'd like to thank the Friends of Mustard Seed for giving us the opportunity to realize this project. Um, would also like to thank the Uganda Society of Architects for supporting this event. And I'd also like to note that for the people watching the webinar, it is being recorded as we speak. So in case you encounter any connection issues, we'll send you an email with a replay link. Now I'm going to briefly dive into some background information, the what, where, and why, um, as well as a brief version of the agenda today. So Local Talks is a new series of quarterly events. And by that, I mean, the sessions will be held every third day of every third week of every third month of the year. So save those dates. This session that we're having right now is actually supposed to be in March, but due to the pandemic, we had to postpone it. Um, but here we are. So do save the dates in March, June, September, and December. Now these sessions are meant to bring together people who are interested in and passionate about green design, architecture and construction in East Africa and the world over. It is curated by Local Works, which is a multidisciplinary build and collaborative. It comprises of architecture, landscape design, civil and structural engineering, mechanical and electrical engineering, quantity surveying and project management and it specializes in the realization of ecological architecture. Local Talks essentially fulfills the share aspect of the four building blocks of Local Works. So the four building blocks are research, design, build, and share. And the aim of these talks is to create an open forum for exchange of ideas, honest debate, and knowledge sharing, as you will witness today. So today's topic is building with earthbags. This is an ancient building technology that is somewhat having a revival due to the low cost and 
low environmental impact that it has. Now, regarding the agenda, we'll have a presentation by our speakers. We'll have a Q&A shortly after the presentation. If you're watching on Zoom, feel free to drop your questions in the Q&A box. If you're on Facebook, leave your questions in the comment section. And if you're here with us today at the Massey Junior School, please note your questions down and we'll answer as many as we can after the presentation. Then at around 10 p.m., we'll have a brief exercise on sealing and compacting an earthbag. And thereafter, we'll do a site walkover so you can actually see the building technology in context. So here to delve into this building technology is Felix Holland, who is our registered architect and the director of Studio FH Architects, and Edson Agume, who is our registered engineer and director of Aquila Gallery. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for thank you for coming. Thank you for finding your your way out to Mustard Seed. And uh, good morning also to everyone who is uh, hopefully now seeing uh, our little presentation as a shared screen. As uh, Sarah has has explained, we are really focusing today on earthback technology in this uh, in this presentation. Um, but we will give you a short background as to where we are and also as to why we are doing what we are doing. The 40% there behind me is a staggering figure um, and it is the, essentially, if you look at the, um, the contribution of the building and, and construction sector on global carbon emissions, that is what we're talking about, 40%. Uh, so if we uh, talk about the role of architects and engineers and what they can contribute to uh, reducing the problem of, or to, to, you know, to addressing the issue of climate change, then we have a rather big role to play. And um, what we are trying to do is in that context. Earth construction for us as, as local works um, plays a big role in how we see uh, our um, part that we can play in this. You see there in the background, some examples of earth, earth construction because there's many, many different uh, applications of it. Compressed earth blocks are perhaps, perhaps the most common one, the most certainly in Uganda quite, uh, quite well known application. Uh, you see here uh, an, an example of compressed earth blocks that are non-interlocking. They are stacked similar to concrete blocks uh, using an earth mortar. Another application of uh, earth construction is rammed earth, which is an in situ version of earth construction that relies on foam work. And then uh, as a third example, there's earth back construction, which is the one that we are going to focus on today. There's different, uh, the, the, one of the key differences between the different types of earth construction is whether they are using any form of stabilizer or not. Um, the first two examples that I showed, uh, uh, compressed earth blocks and rammed earth, normally tend to use stabilizer. So we refer to them as stabilized earth construction. We as local works, however, are particularly interested in non-stabilized um, applications. Um, in many ways, you can say it is something that has followed as a natural development. We started with uh, learning 
about stabilized earth construction, but the more we gain experience, the more we are interested in learning more about non-stabilized um, applications. You see there in the background a, uh, an image of a um, school by Anna Herringer in Bangladesh, which is using non-stabilized um, round earth. Earth bags count as a non-stabilized application. Why is earthback so suitable for us? We feel that earthback construction is extremely suitable to um, our particular situation in Uganda because, as we say there, it is low on carbon and high on labor, and that seems like a, a, a fairly good, fairly good mix for our situation. Um, we have many, many people who need work. We have wonderful soil available, and why should we not make best use of it? To give you a little bit of a background about mustard seed uh, before we completely delve into the technological or in the, in the material side of it, um, this is going to be a kindergarten and primary school. Uh, it is a development that has been planned over a, a number of phases and currently obviously we are constructing phase one. We are building essentially two buildings we, one accommodates the administration and the kindergarten, and it has somewhat of an inverted or mirrored P-shape. And the other one um, is the primary school with four classrooms. In total, initially, the school will have 10, uh, 10, 10 teaching spaces. There's obviously also a toilet block round, uh, next to the primary block, which is going to be connected to a biogas digester. Not very much about this particular building is rectangular and straight. Um, that has nothing to do with the earthback technology. I want to really stress that. Uh, earthback walls can be straight, can be curved, just like any other sort of module-based uh, building material. The reason that we went all curvy in this particular project really has much more to do with the educational philosophy of mustard seed. And today is not the right forum to talk too much about it, but you can see there that our kindergarten is a rather inventive series of curved walls, creating little, little nooks and niches and caves where the kids can uh, climb in. The particular uh, importance about the uh, classrooms for the primer, primary uh, school is that we have two very distinct sides. We have the the entrance side, the circulation side, which is a much more enclosed architecture with relatively small windows and the actual entrance doors. And then on the other side, each classroom is very, very open and, 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 and opens up to an external teaching space that is essentially some form of uh, outside terrace that will be shaded by trees. Obviously, the, 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 the motivation here is to to encourage as much outdoor learning as possible. That is something that um, our client is particularly keen on. One of the beauties about earth construction is that the vast majority of the materials are essentially mined on site, excavated on site. This is a drone shot uh, that we took at the beginning of the site where uh, we had started uh, creating the platforms for the buildings and where we had started stockpiling the material 
um, that is needed for the earthback construction. And I'm now going to hand over to Edson, who will continue talking about a bit the soil capacities and soil properties. Good morning. Um, well, uh, to talk about earthbugs, we need to first understand uh, the earth. And the earth here that we use for any earth construction must be earth that is extracted from below the, the surface. So it must be free from roots, free from compost, free from humus, and free from all, all, all matter that is really not earth. And what is earth? Uh, what you could be um, able to, uh, to see on the screen is that uh, earth is composed of gravel, uh, sand, uh, silt, and clay, in different or various proportions. Uh, our earth here, um, uh, one of the, the first charts really shows we dug many different holes and uh, uh, characterized our soil uh, there in that chart. Most of, the, most of the pits really showed that we have a lot of, of silt um, and very, very little uh, sand, uh, really 10 to 20% sand and the rest being uh, silt and, uh, and sand and some little clay. And uh, the, the lower chart uh, basically shows the consistency of the soil because the, the, the forces that hold the soil together are very important. And that's really coming from the clay and the silt particles in the soil. What I'm almost forgetting to say is that this can be characterized by the size, particle size distribution. So the clay is the lower part of 0.002 millimeters. And then between that and 0.075, you have silt. And between that and about six millimeters, depending on the standards you follow, either six or 10, you have sand. And above the sand, you have the gravel. And uh, the composition, the composition of this soil will determine the strength that you can get and will also determine whether you actually can compact this soil or whether this soil is in a, in a way suitable for construction. And the other important part about soil is the consistency, which is the plasticity indices, which is uh, basically how, how well can this soil hold together. And uh, for our part, basically our soil was a bit on the line, which really tends between clay and silt. It wasn't really very, very good. And, um, and that's why we are actually, you'll see later that we are blending this soil to make it a bit more suitable. Yeah. The, the foundation, there are different foundation systems that you could use with this, but we would, would prefer a, a, a flexible kind of foundation system with, with, uh, with rubble, rubble stone. Rubber is very good because it doesn't really allow moisture to, to rise, but it's also kind of, is, it's, a natural, it's a natural spring. So if there's any settlement, they are actually, it is able to, it is able to uh, contain the settlement without create, co causing damage. And it's also very good. Here we are not in an earthquake zone, but when we are building in an earthquake zone, uh, loose rubber is, is quite good for that part because it's really a natural spring uh, to build on. Um, they, for our part here, we basically have that rubble stone foundation. We, we have a ground beam 
and we have a, a concrete slab. And the reason we're actually going through this, and there are series of, of moisture barriers within that, where, like Felix has said, we're using a non-stabilized earth material, which is very, very sensitive to moisture changes. So you really, really have to keep the moisture out. And the best way was to actually use the rubber foundation, use the uh, a, a slab that seals off, and, and on top of that, we also have a, a stone DPC. Uh, uh, on the background there, you can actually see the, the, the real, a real picture of the buildup of this. Uh, we are using a, a stone uh, DPC, which is a very hard uh, black granite. And uh, we are bonding it uh, with, with cement mortar and uh, the gaps were filling with loose sand. And uh, this has already shown from the test that we've, we've, we've done that really there's really no moisture rising through this kind of material. Um, the, the mixing, um, we, we are utilizing, of course, the soil that is from the site. There's, there's, we've had a lot of bark excavations um, where we have extracted this soil and, of course, the trenches. Um, we are mixing this soil uh, with, with some fraction of sand. Why we are doing this is because the, from, from what I've explained earlier about how uh, the consistency of our soil is very, very hard to compact. <clears throat> the, we are looking to achieve a certain strength. We are looking at about uh, one, one megapascal of strength in this soil. And the soil that we have from the site was not giving us that. So blending with sand was allowing us to compact it well to achieve that strength. Um, the, the system uh, of, 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 of mixing soil is a bit of actually the most important, very, very difficult. Um, you need to actually have sufficient moisture in this, in this mix for you to be able to achieve a very good strength. Uh, we normally call that an optimum moisture content. We, we on, on site, we actually we have a way of, of basically, you know, uh, making balls and dropping them to see, you know, whether we have either too much or too little. And basically when you, when you roll a ball of this earth and you throw it down, it breaks in many pieces, means you have very little moisture. If if it actually stay, breaks in two pieces or just stays as a ball, you have too much moisture. If it breaks in about four or five pieces, you have sufficient moisture for <coughs> compaction. It's also very, very important as you build with earth that you maintain the height, the height uh, of these fields and the compaction so that you can achieve continuous layers. We have tried. We have, I can't say that we have actually done it so well, but we have managed to at least layer this, these bugs in a way that is very consistent. Of course, if you feel too much or too little and you lay these things down and compact, you might end up with either a wider wall or a thicker bag, so you, you, you lose the layering in that way. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> we are using um, a bag cage. Uh, this is a flexible, a flexible cage, but at the beginning, of course, we we, we kind of level, uh, measured the height of, of, of this cage that will give us uh, a, consistent, uh, a consistent bug. And every time, of course, they are feeding these bugs, they're actually measuring the height of this field before they lock them. 
Um, and then these bugs are placed along, uh, along the wall, along the profile of the wall. And, and, uh, and compacted with, with ramas. Uh, these, these ramas, we're using steel ramas, which are about seven kilograms. And normally you are not supposed to use force, but uh, in our case, we have guys who have quite some energy. They are not used to just dropping the rama, they just also add some energy, but normally you really don't, you're not meant to use the energy to, to ram these bags. And you ram along a line, so that you actually then achieve a very uh, a flat, consistent surface after all the bugs have been dumped. Um, a very important part of, 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 of uh, earth bug construction is, uh, is barbed wire. It's, it's very, very important to, to use barbed wire because you, you avoid slip between the bugs, so it works like mortar in, in brick and, and mortar. It really works like mortar, locking the bugs together. But this also has other added advantages of increasing the, the tensile strength of this wall. Uh, so two lines of barbed wire um, will actually hold a lot, and we put in every course so that we actually don't have uh, any, any kind of slip. So these two lines of barbed wire will actually achieve a lot of tensile strength to avoid any uh, kind of movement. Um, the other important part is the fittings, fixtures, doors, windows. How do we fit this in such a way that, uh, that they are safe and that they are not easily uh, movable? Um, of course, in, uh, in normal, brick and mortar construction, it's very easy to drill and fix something in a wall, but in this case, the, ma the material within, this, in the, within these bags will not be strong enough, will not be uh, 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 yeah, strong enough to, to hold fitting. So it's very, very important that you, you put uh, areas where you're going to hold, say, windows, doors, electrical fittings, anything that you're going to hang on that wall that you, you allow for, there are some timber pieces that you build within uh, and, and, and uh, they are basically pressed with the weight of the, of the bags so, so that you can actually easily screw a, a door, a window, anything there without uh, any risks. Yeah. Um, yes, in this, in this, uh, what we, we uh, Felix had talked about the caves, uh, and the caves are quite uh, uh, some very uh, big piece of, of, of structure, and uh, we are actually achieving this by 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 formwork that follows most of these the bugs that that form the caves are pre-compacted as opposed to what we had before, which we were compacting in in situ, and placed until uh, they basically lock and. Uh, as you can see on, on those images, uh, that's the way we were actually achieving the, the caves, yeah, or the arches, you must see. I had talked about the fact that you need to keep moisture out of these bugs, but it is actually not very possible that you actually keep moisture out of any building material in this country. So we, we actually need to, um, we need to protect these bugs, yes, from moisture from down, but we also need to protect these bugs from erosion caused by rain and wind. 
But more, more importantly, we need to make sure that the moisture that is trapped in this material actually manages to get out. And the kind of finishing that you choose for this need to allow for that. What we are doing here is that we are doing a series of coats of, of earth, earth plaster, plain earth plaster with some sand. And to achieve some good strength against erosion, we are actually using, um, we are using lime plasters, uh, lime and earth plasters. Yeah. Um, a bit of uh, the labor productivity is that from our experience here that uh, we, we have managed to achieve uh, basically four workers, an average of four workers per day yielding 54 bags. And this comes from, of course, a series of, of things that we have, of buildings that we have done and we have been monitoring the progress, the progress quite well. And, and I think the, the, the kindergarten and the admin structure, which is quite a large uh, structure, which is about, I can't tell how many bags there, but it's about 1,200 square meters of wall was built in 46 uh, days. And that's where this comes from. Um, actually, I should just stay there because I wanted to ask you a question because I had, when I, when I explained the design, I think there's one significant uh, uh, aspect of the design that I didn't mention and that is the fact that our walls do not actually touch the roof. Uh, in the cross-section, you could have seen that. And of course, when we go to site, you will also see that. We have used that as a particular architectural um, uh, measure to increase cross-ventilation, to bring uh, indirect light into the building, and also to really emphasize this indoor-outdoor um, you know, transition that we are keen on. But I thought it would be interesting um, to hear from Edson, from a structural point of view, to what extent the the walls, uh, the fact that the walls are not full height and are not actually supporting a roof, how it would have been, how the design would have been different in case we had not chosen to support the roof by a gun pole structure as we have now done. Well, I, I thought I wasn't going to talk about the structure design, but yeah, the the walls not being able to touch the roof means that they are more like, they are working more like uh, fence walls or perimeter walls that have no proper uh, bracing. Of course, the roof always holds the walls together and that would have been, structurally would have been a much easier and much comfortable thing to do that you, you hold the roof by on the walls so that they hold the walls together and also the walls easily hold the roof together. So right now we just basically have two things, which is the roof and its, uh, its frame structure separate from the, from the wall structure. Not entirely separate because we're actually using the, we're using the gables or the, the partition walls to, to brace the walls. But generally the walls are freestanding walls, which makes, makes them quite very, very difficult to, uh, to design structurally because you need, you need quite good strength and good mass to be able to, to hold them away, to hold them against the wind. And the same applies to the roof. We actually need also very good strength to hold it against the, the wind because it doesn't really benefit from the wall so much. Where's the ring ring? Well, 
that's why there's no ring beam because the ring beam is normally uh, where it ties the whole thing together but it's also a transition between the roof and the walls and and since we actually don't have that we we have a tie we have a tie beam basically that ties the whole uh, uh pole frame together but uh, still has that has no connection to the walls Okay, thank you. I thought this was an important um, piece of information to add. I'm sure there will uh, there will be some questions in that um, direction. But Eton, you are not actually yet fully done. We have um, <laughs> we wanted to to end our little presentation with uh, sharing with you the challenges that we have encountered or the lessons that we have learned um, so far. One was already shared by Eton. That was sort of What's the speed of construction? What can we actually achieve? How does that compare to other types of construction? How labor intensive is it? So we've tried to extract that basic information there with our um, 45, uh, 54 bags per day of a group of four people that we feel um, we have sort of achieved on, on average. I guess people can now use to extrapolate. We used four workers because this is not a type of technology that one guy does. This, these are, this is really a group effort. It's quite uh, hard manual work. And so obviously you need people. And we didn't only have four. We had, I think on average, 26, 22, 26 people that were sort of working away and did an amazing job. The a second lesson learned, and I really think Edson should explain a little bit more about that, is um, you know, the, the challenges of, uh, of lime earth plaster. If you think back um, to my opening statement, why do we do that? Well, we are definitely on a, a path in this project, or generally in our work, uh, of trying to reduce the amount of cement we are using. That is really one of the key aspects that we are interested in. Um, that, of course, means generally reducing the embodied energy in our building material. So we are, of course, now interested in um, finding alternatives to a cement-based plaster. But this is not only because of the embodied en energy, as Edson has mentioned, it is also really about the nature of the plaster. We want something that is vapor open. We want something that allows any moisture to move freely through the wall. Um, the moment there is moisture trapped in a wall, the structural stability suffers. Edson, do you want to share with us a little bit about um, the experience made so far? We are, of course, still halfway through, but the experience made so far with uh, us lime plaster. And also how it is bonded. We've not talked much about it. Well, for, for some of you who are here, might just see a little of all these samples that we have. I'm sure you're wondering what these are. Um, but we have, from day one, we have actually started experimenting with, uh, with earth and lime uh, plasters. Just because we, for talking in Uganda context, context is that I do not know personally anyone who knows how to work with lime properly in this country. So it has been a series of training the guys here, our workers, and, uh, and even me myself reading and learning these things. Uh, but what you must understand that is that lime needs, uh, it needs, it's, it's very, working with lime is very difficult for many reasons. First, um, 
it, 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 it breaks easily, it cracks easily. And, and this can of course be avoided by, by, by uh, incorporating, um, uh, incorporating uh, things that will deal with the tensile uh, strength. Like we are using mesh, some people use fiber in the line. The same with us, we also have to uh, incorporate fiber in to make sure that it doesn't break apart, it holds together because of course when it dries, it will tend to, to shrink and break apart. So yeah, we've, I've said that we've done quite some trainings. Uh, it's, it's important that we have reinforcement and it's also very, very important that we cure these walls. The, a bit of a lime cycle is that the lime is of course burned from, from calcium carbonate to expel the carbon dioxide and you remain with calcium oxide and then that is what you actually use to mix with the with the sand and water to make to make the lime the lime plaster this can only happen in presence of moisture and this reaction can even take for over six months but of course very important early on and in absence of moisture that will not happen this thing will crumble um, like you know like dust so we you have to cure these walls for for us we are try, trying to do it for at least 14 days um and of course the substrate is also very very important lime is not something that is going to hold on on say say something like a concrete block you will not hold there so you need a very soft surface which is perfect earth is a very perfect it's a good surface for for lime it will hold it will bond there easily yeah Another lesson learned applies really to any uh, building, not only to this particular one, and that is plan well, think about your services very well, and provide a lot of information prior to going on site. But um, the real uh, interesting part of the picture on the right that explains sort of how the services are installed is really that, you know, there's a bit of a difference between earth bag and let's say a concrete blockwork wall and that is that things are not that easily fixed to it and therefore they need to be prepared we have shown this before in the beginning where we um, sort of where Edson talked about how are doors windows frames etc actually fixed to it well you need to prepare for all these and essentially insert little timber supports into the into the wall at that very moment Wherever you don't do that, you will struggle later to, to put them properly in place. So things like built-in furniture, which we have quite a lot in this school, little bookshelves, cubby holes, they need to be thought through and they need to be provided for already at the stage when you build up your walls. So there's a bit of planning needed. If that planning is provided for and if it's done well, then uh, no problem at all. If not, you end up later trying to cut into the earthquake, trying to fix the supports to the wires and such things, and that's obviously better avoided. And this is an interesting one, uh, an interesting lesson learned. When we started learning or studying about earthquake technology, we we came across many books. There are many books available. Uh, one of one of which. Um, was for us the, 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 the most informative one. I think it's actually called Earthback Construction, if I remember correctly. Um, and it is really a very, very good, very detailed guide of how to build an earthback wall. And I recommend that uh, to anyone who, who, who is interested and who wants to, 
um, to, to, to go that route. We studied that book in detail to understand all the challenges. This is a book of uh, some American guys who, 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 who have a lot of experience, uh, decades of experience in, in using this technology. And they have, of course, used the decades to work out certain methods of how to do it. The interesting bit, the most interesting bit or the most uh, labor intensive bit about this technology is how to get the material up onto the wall. And you will see that later when you start doing this yourself, um, because you're dealing with a very heavy compacted material. These guys um, came up with a technology where they used um, relatively large tins. I think these are tins of peaches or something like that that they buy in the supermarket. And I think they're about four kilos or five kilos. And they used these tins as a measuring device, but also as a device of moving earth from the wheelbarrow up onto the wall by throwing it. So there is a person standing on the ground with a wheelbarrow with pre-mixed soil, and he or she fills in the material into that tin and throws it up. And there's a guy standing at the top of the wall and he fills it in to the, into the bag. That bag is being held up by a cage, which we have also um, got here on site. And they, you know, if you do that day in, day out, day in, day out, you get incredibly fast. And these guys, basically, they throw this thing in a, in a permanent uh, sort of a serial activity, probably without looking at the end, because it's just, you know, it's like the same guy, the guys are throwing bricks up a site. You can see that frequently, that they really get used to it. We tried to introduce that technology at, on Mustard Seed with our team. And, but we were also quite open to our team to, basically explain what we're trying to achieve, but not be necessarily um, insisting on how it is done. And they were absolutely not comfortable with that technology. They didn't like it. So they developed their own, um, their own way of working, which we have named Posho Power, because it's quite, an, it's quite a labor intensive one, which is essentially that all, the, um, all our bags were filled at a central location, at that location where the stockpile was. And we used buckets to measure, or we used our actually more or less our frame to measure because as Edson has explained, it is very important that the amount of soil in every bag is very controlled so that you get an even size of a bag. And then they actually stitched these bags and carried them to the actual site where they then put it in place and compacted it. We shall see that in our practical exercise in a moment, how that works, but about how heavy is one bag? Yeah. We don't know. 30 kilos. So it's, you know, if you do that the whole day, that is quite some, some energy. Um, but, you know, our guys preferred it and we were happy because we, uh, all, all we were interested in the end is, can we achieve the quality that we need to achieve and can we achieve the, a similar pace of construction? And all of this was the case. So why should we now try to enforce a certain way of building if the, if the team on site is not so comfortable with it. This brings us to an end of our, um, of our little presentation. I will now hand back to Sarah, who will lead us through the Q&A session. Great, thank you so much, Felix and Edson. Um, we have quite a few questions here. So, someone asks to speak about termite proofing. 
Well, the, the termite proofing here is ensured by, uh, by using bugs, I guess. Um, some tests have been done. We haven't done them ourselves, but from the researchers we have read is that put a piece of wood in this, uh, in this bag next to another piece of wood in the open, the other piece of wood will be eaten immediately and the termites will not bore through these bags. But the other, the other way of protection would be, of course, ensuring that you don't have moisture or you don't have uh, yeah, moisture from the ground. That's where the termites will come from. The termites will bore through stuff that has some level of moisture in. So if, if, you, have, if, you, if you have good detailing and you ensure that there's no water getting into this, uh, this, this soil, you should uh, be 90% sure that the termites will not bore through. Also in the finishing, the, the, the type of finishing that you choose, lime is, is not very nice. It's very, it has a very high pH. Insects don't like it. In fact, one way of preserving things is just put, put lime. Maybe you also mentioned about the, the, the wooden, the timbers. Yeah, but the, yeah, for the other exposed things, like yeah, even the timber, we are using timber chippings within the plaster. There we are adding some borax and the timber, we are also treating it with borax. But again, whatever you, even if you treat with borax and there's moisture getting in, it will still dissolve the borax and later you, it will be eaten anyway. So moisture is very important. Keep it dry. Thank you for that, Edson. There's a question here from Andrew Kamukama, who, he asked the question actually. The artist, was it easy to achieve as you would in a conventional, as you would in a conventional art wall using solid blocks? And the second question is for doors and windows, did you have to add something in the bag to stabilize the frame? A normal wall would have some kind of fishtail pump. In this case, I missed how the frame is stabilized into the wall. The first question was. Well, I am not sure. I don't know what a conventional arch is. Arches are very difficult to build, whether with block or with uh, with earth bags. And I must say that we have we have done vaults, so we are doing vaults with brick. We are also doing we are also doing uh, uh, now these these vaults or these shells with with earth bags. <coughs> Sorry. Um, yes, I, I was. I was. I was saying that. Uh, yeah, we we are building arches with bricks, and and we are also doing with earth bags. And I must say that it was much easier to achieve in earth bags. Just to add on to that uh, to that answer, also that um, that was maybe one of the advantages of all of our curved walls and our you know, irregular shapes of classrooms. Um, the, the, the amount of precision that one can achieve with the earth bags is to a certain extent limited. And that's not only the arches, that is also throughout the exact window position, the exact straightness of certain things. It helps, of course, now that we have a very irregular, um, you know, layout and an irregular design. 
uh, where we can easily deal with a radius, say, that is not to the millimeter because it's anyway going to be plastered with a very thick layer of, um, of, of, of an, an earth under layer, if you want, so um, that this gives us a real chance to still sculpt the walls to the way we want. The second question, I think, is better. The doors. We're fixing uh, doors and windows. I think we've, we've talked about it, but uh, yeah, we, I say that we build, we build in some, some timber pieces, and these timber pieces are, are actually um, connected to a wider board that, that is actually nailed into the, the earth bags and connected with the barbed wire. So when you actually add more weight on this, on this timber piece, you get quite some stability. So it's, easy, it's easier to, to, to screw or to connect anything, a, a door or beat a window into this uh, end piece of, 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 uh, of solid timber that is actually getting its strength from uh, another timber plate that goes much, much deeper into, into the layer of the bag. Fantastic. And the beautiful thing is we're going to walk around so you'll be able to see some of these things. Um, there's a question from Rita. How does the pricing compare to mainstream construction materials such as concrete? So cost monetarily, community strengthening, maintenance time and all that you find relevant. It's great that you that the question already sort of uh, indicates that um, the earthbag construction, the earthbag technology has a lot, a lot more benefits than just being a low-cost technology. That is really important to us. So you mentioned, or, or the Rita mentioned sort of the community aspect of it and the, we mentioned before the labor, the labor aspect, the labor intensity. So these are all things that we are interested in and these are all things that the, our client is also very interested in for this particular project. Um, the question about the the cost of this technology um, is a difficult one. I, or let's say finding the correct answer to that is a difficult one because as I think most of you are aware, it is to a certain extent misleading to only look at a certain element of a construction and come up with a square meter rate for that element because that element is always affecting others. So to give you an example, whatever type of wall you're using for a building has an impact on the foundation and the cost of the, the design and therefore the cost on the foundation. Equally, whether that uh, wall supports your roof or not also has a very big impact on, on the overall cost. I think we can give you two answers to the question and you can pick the one that you want. One, one is an itemized, sort of an idea of an itemized cost, um, actual material and labor cost. And the other one is a square meter cost that is more derived from how a contractor looks at an overall construction project. One earth bag uh, costs 600, one bag, one polypropylene bag uh, manufactured at African Polysax in Namanbe costs 600 shillings. So this is, this is number one piece of information. How many bags go in one square meter, Morgan? You can't remember. Um, 
0.096 square meters. If somebody has a calculator, you can tell me how many uh, are in one square meter. Then you already know the cost of the um, the cost of the the bag itself. Then uh, the material you can practically say, depending on the site you are at, maybe entirely for free because you may only use the excavated soil on your site, or you may have to add some sand. Edson explained that on this particular site we were forced to add some sand into it. Um, I think 30% yeah, sand. So obviously for that one we had to pay because we don't have a, a, a source of sand on our site. And the rest is labor. And we have given you an indication of labor. Um, we have roughly calculated that four guys can lay 54 bags in a day. Um, and those are now the prime components that, um, you know, that, that you could build up the cost with. The other calculation that we, have, um, that we have done, which is more based on a square meter rate and based on a more global view on the construction, estimates the cost to be in the region of $15 per square meter. Um, now, when you compare that, let's say with concrete blockwork or something else or roadside brick or whatever, please bear in mind that we are building here walls that are almost half a meter thick. Yeah, that is a very important, it's a very important aspect because we, I feel always when different technologies are being compared uh, on a price level, and um, we must make sure that we compare like for like. Wilson, is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah. Thanks, Felix. Just to help put this in perspective, um, using a, the square meter um, approach, the Felix has mentioned that the price per square meter for these bugs was about $15. If you were to use, say, a 200 millimeter thick solid concrete block wall, that then gets to about $25 per square meter. If you then take it to um, a roadside brick, which, I mean, um, it appears cheap, but the impact is quite significant if you think about the number of trees that are cut just to, um, to make these bricks. So these bricks are at about, the local burnt clay brick is about 12 to $14 a square meter. So that, that helps put it in perspective. Mine is just a contribution towards this discussion of cost. Very often in green design, when people are looking at cost, they're basically looking at the initial construction cost of a project, yet cost should equally get into life cycle of the building. And we are often quick to make, to find the least expensive option during construction that will end up costing the client during running of the building. Um, so for example, no one is thinking about the heating costs at the end, cooling costs at the end, cost of maintaining the material, cost of replacing those materials. So in this discussion about cost, it is very critical for us to look at it as a lifestyle, lifetime cost of the building, not just the initial construction cost. And I think that is why most people have been hesitant to opt for green design. So uh, that is just one thing we should look out for. 
fantastic. And that actually leads perfectly into the next question. What is the lifespan for this form of construction? And also, what is the maintenance aspect of the building in the future? Well, um, not sure I can, but uh, earth buildings that have been surviving for thousands of years. Um, I, I don't, um, I'm sure that it will compare quite well with any other uh, building material. The problem with actually using cement is that, uh, is that with time it actually degrades, uh, the, the quality degrades. And, and you actually have to bring down the, the building or whatever structure you have, to have used cement on, uh, which is different with us. Us is the same today and the same 50 years. So. I would also like to add to that, that from, from an architectural point of view, um, on this particular project, we have really tried to respect all the rules of the game of earth construction. So for instance, we have very large roof overhangs. So we are really protecting these walls very, very well from driving rain. Edson has explained during the presentation the triple protection of moisture from below. Triple in the sense that we first of all have a, a stone foundation, which in itself has no capillary action at all. We have a very dense, thin but very dense concrete slab over it. Um, we also have a damp proof membrane below that. And then we have this, this rather inventive uh, triple layer of stone DPC, as we call it. Um, so these are, these are really, it's a, it's a triple action because we are very aware that moisture is the one thing that will bring down earth, earth, earth construction. That's the one thing that really can weaken it over time. And we feel that we have um, taken all measures that are needed to be taken to make this building very, very uh, long lasting. And um, there was also a question about maintenance. One thing that will require maintenance over time is the lime earth plaster. Now that is exactly its strength. The strength of, of, of earth-based plasters is that they can be very, very easily repaired, improved, patched up over time. That's a, one of the big di differences to cement-based painted plasters or you know, chemically, chemically enhanced plasters. It is impossible to patch that up very well over time, whereas the, the earth-based plasters are, are really, really good at that. And we have a question here from Daniel who's asking, is there a concern for rain getting on the bags during construction? Yes, there is a concern for rain getting on the bag during construction. And uh, what, what we have been doing is that we, every after working, uh, we cover. And we have actually been very unfortunate because from the time we started working, it's been raining until now. Um, Harriet asks, considering the fragility of raw earth, how do these structures perform in the case of earthquakes? That's a very nice question. Um, <laughs> I'm just reminded of uh, the earthquake that happened uh, in 2015 in Nepal. I think it was 2015, right? It was I think magnitude close to eight. 
and the only surviving uh, buildings were actually amateur built Akbag buildings. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Paul is asking, how can I test or check out the quality of the soil and its components locally on site from deep in my village? <laughs> well, I would like to know how deep that village is. <laughs> Uh, if it is in Uganda, it's definitely not deep in the village. Um, <laughs> well, there are some, some tests you can do on site, but they're not very conclusive. And uh, I've been so lazy because we have so many laboratories that even deep in the village in Karamoja, we've just carried this soil to a lab in Kampara and gotten it tested. Uh, but the tests you could do, of course, is that there's a jar test where you can, um, it's very, very difficult, uh, where you use basically the settling velocity of these different particles. You have to get a very clear, consistent uh, cylinder. You fill it with this soil, add water, add salt, you shake, and you, you put it down to stand, I think for about 30 minutes, and you basically, you read, uh, you, 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 you mark where the large particles have settled, and another maybe 15 minutes, you mark whether the, the next larger particle, which is sand, has settled, and that basically gives you a bit of a percentage. Uh, a bit of a percentage of, of these, of, these uh, uh, of, of the constituents. Uh, of course, the best, the best soil for using in any kind of construction, like I'd already said, is, is a gravel sandy soil, but with a bit of clay. When you have about, uh, when you have about 10% clay and about, uh, you know, 70 to 90% sand and, and gravel, you have a perfect soil. Uh, to build with without any kind of, of blending. Um, the other thing is that you actually just you just build, as in you you get you get this soil that you have in deep in your village and and uh, compact it in a, an in an earth bag. You wait for it to dry and open it up and and visually see whether it is it is stable, whether it is together. Uh, if it has crumbled, then it probably means that you don't have sufficient clay. Uh, if it's, uh, if, if uh, yeah, probably, yeah, but you, you just see it visually. And the other thing is that I've, I've talked about the fact that you don't use topsoil. And the easiest way, some, the topsoil varies from site to site. Some topsoil could be half a meter in other places, could be a hundred millimeters. So you, normally you smell. The, uh, soil that used, supposed to be used for construction should actually not smell. Yeah, I just want to add a little question to that for Edson. Yeah. Um, would it would it be um, would it be correct to say that if you compare earthbag construction with uh, say compressed earth blocks, would it be or, or round earth indeed? Would it be fair to say that the the exact nature of the soil composition in earthbag construction is less critical compared to those other technologies. Yes, if you have if you have the time, you can actually pack almost anything into an earth bag. Um, well, I I'm going to elaborate on that because if you don't have the time, our projects are time limited. You're not going to allow for this material to settle before you can finish it. It can even take a year. 
So you can actually pack and compact a bit, but if, if the material is actually not good for you to manually or to mechanically compact it, you actually have to allow enough time for this stuff to settle before you finish it. Otherwise you'll finish it and you'll struggle with cracks, you'll struggle with a lot of things because the soil is continuing to move. But yeah, it is, it is not as sensitive as other forms of construction in that way, if you have the time. Great, so we're going to answer two more questions from uh, Zoom and then we'll open up the questions to the floor. Um, Habit would love to hear your take on using earth bags for multi-storied structures. Well, I think everything is about design. If, if it's design and, and resistance, um, you can actually do maybe ground plus one plus two with, with this. But if you're also a bit limited and you want to really go much higher using again, uh, earth bag kind of masonry uh, in, in a structural way, you have to look at it at stabilization. If you actually need strength, if you need a lot of strength, you can actually stabilize with cement or with lime to achieve the strength you need for whatever resistance that, that you need from from your, from your number of stories that you have. Yeah. Great. So one last one. Um, Charlotte says, thank you for setting up this and sharing your knowledge. Um, her question is, do you need council approval for such projects? Is the labor local? What has been your experience in terms of community participation and making decisions? Yes, we, we needed um, the same type of building approvals that any project needs in Uganda, anywhere you are constructing. In other words, we, needed, we, we submitted this for planning approval to, uh, to the local authorities in Wakiso district, and we received the approval for it. Um, the, I've mentioned before that for the client, the sort of involving the local community in the construction is is very important because this is a new school and that school is really meant to be for the local community in this area so the construction activities were meant to already be the first um, the first part of that uh, community engagement and of the, of the the contact that the that the school or yeah, the relationship that the school builds up with the community so we tried as much as possible to um, to use local labor um, we also tried, and you know, this goes beyond the earth bag construction. This, um, this project, of course, for instance, it has a, um, uh, um, an important element of um, mud, woven mats as a sealing material. That is actually a process that we are right now going through. We are engaging a number of women's initiatives in the, in the region, in the area, to provide us with with the mats that we require and such things. So yes, there has been a, a, a good amount of, of community uh, involvement already going on and it is expected to, to increase over time. Great, so we're going to open up the questions to the people who are here in sight. I think we, are going, we have enough time to answer five questions. So any, any questions? Thank you. My name is Daniel Chanowira, and uh, my question would be about using earthbag technology for retaining walls. If we are trying to keep the moisture out, how 
how how would it work if you wanted to use it to retain something well i guess the best answer would be i think that whatever material you're going to use for retaining what you still need to keep the moisture out right um and and that's something that that you could design um i am not very very sure about using this earth bags by earth bag meaning compacted earth non-stabilized as a retaining wall structure uh for as a permanent structure i am not sure that i i have much knowledge about that i have not thought about it so i i, I wouldn't want to say that it will not work but uh i think you will need to do quite some more studying on that to see how to make it work uh, thank you for a very good project i noticed on the site you opted for a stone finish without mortar in between and from your conversation about locking uh, out a level of moisture but also sort of allowing the moisture to get out um, if it enters what was the basis for opting for that finish so from an architectural point of view from a finishing point of view um, actually we are not yet done we are still um, intending to um, fill a what i would say sort of an, an earth-based mortar in a recessed way into those joints we are very keen on these joints we will show them later as we walk around we, i think that our um our masonry team is very very skilled and they are really doing a wonderful job in um you know that sort of jigsaw game that you play with slates and really getting these joints very very small so um, it is an important aspect you will also see as we go up there that in some of the corners we are trying to use real block slates and then we're combining block slates with slates um, so that there's a real um, that, so that we also express the craftsmanship that's that's an architectural uh, explanation for it I think um, it's also very interesting to talk about it from a structure from uh structure maybe protection point of view is that we we need to keep this something that actually missed in my presentation that you much as you want to get the moisture out you actually want to keep the water out also i mean the driving rain uh, or any washing water that will get onto this wall shouldn't enter and uh, that's what we're tr also trying to achieve with the the lime finish is that you actually can't get water through it's where it contains water but it releases the moisture and the same with sandstone sandstone is a very porous stone but of course water will not go through it will run over but the moisture will actually get out hi i'm uh, tom gruen with emi uh, edson i had a question for you as a structural engineer um your design for these these walls um out of plane uh loads against the walls trying to overturn them is there any kind of vertical tensile strength that you're assuming or is it just mass and width that's kind of preventing that overturning the the curvy nature nature of the walls was actually meant also for structural reasons uh, so we are using shape we are using mass, but we are also using some level of, 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 of compression strength, really not tensile strength. I mean, the compression, uh, the compression within that, of course, with the highest storm or wind you can ever have, should not crush the material. And I think from, um, we, 
I don't remember the exact figure, but it was extremely low. I think it was really coming to like 0 0.1 megapascal or something. It's very, very low that that could be resisted with anything. Of course, because of the shape, when you put in the shape of the walls and the size and the mass of the walls, it actually reduces the the, um, the need for tensile reinforcement. We are going to answer some Facebook questions. Um, there's a question from Timothy Michael Machiri. With construction being a back and forth process, in the event that you have design changes and have to essentially move walls or cut away some walls, how friendly is this to demolitions and reconstruction in part? Very friendly. <laughs> Very friendly. I mean, it's not only very friendly to changing a wall here and there and removing something and adding something. It is also very friendly to disappear altogether. That's one of the beauties that we, you know, I think Pamela sort of, you know, mentioned it a little bit. The, the recyclability of this building is, of this technology is amazing. If you just leave it there and do nothing and remove the roof, it will disappear and, and become a farm over time again. So, um, yeah, it is a very, it's a, it's a very, flexible and 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 easy to use building technology um another question from aaron given the texture of the sacks how do you apply finishing to it in other words is there flexibility when it comes to surface finishing well quite an important question actually uh, for all of us um it's it's impossible to have any adhesion uh, onto that uh, material it's very, very difficult for anything to hold on. Uh, so during construction, we're actually building with, uh, with galvanized wire through, where we, we, which we use to tie the mesh that actually hold whichever kind of finish that, uh, that is going to come. But you cannot really rely on adhesion to this. Uh, but what I've seen other people do, they also melt the bags and then you can actually have proper adhesion onto the, onto the clay, onto the air. So just to add on to this, um, you may recall the, the photos and the drawing that showed the, the barbed wire, the two strands of barbed wire that are in each course. We have at a certain spacing, we have added to those strands of barbed wire, we have added binding wire that we made stick out on either side of the wall. And with those binding wires, you then fix chicken mesh, very you know ordinary galvanized chicken mesh. You fix that, and that is what then provides the basis for um, for the plaster. Um, I think this. I, I saw there's actually a question coming that is very similar from from Clemens regarding the finishes, the possibility of the finishes. I think that sort of answers the the question. Um, we would not necessarily recommend to leave the earth bags exposed and do nothing about them because they do degrade over time. They are, you know, they will not withstand forever the uh, the UV, for instance, the UV uh, exposure. And um, so, some form of finishing um, is definitely recommended. Um, in addition to the to to roof overhangs and good protection from the ground and etc. Um, but I think it is an important aspect that Edson just made. It is quite interesting to understand that. The, the polypropylene bag itself is not what gives this technology the structural strength. It is more, the bag is a type of formwork. It's a type of, you know, almost temporary formwork that allows you to compact. But once the compaction has happened, and once the material has dried out, the strength itself is not coming from that bag. Therefore, some people actually remove it. 
and, and melt it away and then uh, have a proper awesome um, um, material to deal with. By O'Malley planning challenges, is there a standard size of bags to use? <laughs> well, um, I guess you start by designing the size of the wall you want and then you <clears throat> you go in for for the format of, of, of or the size of the bag uh, that you want to use. The, the bags that you'll get on the market are either too small or too big. Um, I think we tried with uh, 50 kilogram sacks, which were, gave us very, very wide walls. And then we tried with 25 kilogram sacks, which again gave us, couldn't build a wall because they are too small. So what then we did, we just worked with the factories and gave them the size of the bags we want and they produced them. Uh, so, but all de it's determined by the size of, of what you want to achieve. Because Felix is very particular about carbon footprint. Did you opt for SISO bags versus the plastic bags? Uh, have you ever been very particular to ask for the source of the plastic, you know? And, and then also, how would you have compared this, for example, with a plastic bottle filled with a technology? No, I think this is more of a structural question. Um, the sisal versus the polypropylene. But, um, you know, I, I find it always very important to, um, to find the right balance and to, to, you know, there's no, there's nothing in life where there's no sort of black and white and there's always a bit of shades of gray and there's always a middle path that one needs to be taken. So I feel that um, we, of course we discussed it. What's that plastic like? Um, where does it come from? Uh, who makes it? How is it made, etc. The proportion of it within the entire wall is still absolutely minute and um, it is locally made, which is very important for us. We have actually for this entire project, for anything you see there on the side, not one bit of material has been imported into the country, um, including these bags. Um, so to a certain extent, you know, you can also see the positives in there if you engage the local factories and you, you generate um, employment. Um, I think Edson should respond to the, because I asked exactly the same question, of course, can we use size and why not? Well, we actually wanted to use size, remember? Um, um, what actually, um, the biggest issue with SISO would be uh, biodegradation, which we could have solved again by probably soaking them in, in some, some borax mixtures. The other was the cost. They are, they are I think, five times more expensive. And I think that's, that's what, uh, what killed the SISO was the cost. How does it compare to, what's your question about the recycled bottles in terms of? Yeah, but in terms of structural strength, or is it... well, I know nothing about recycled bottles. Um, I, I, I'm not going to lie about that. So. Shall try that out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my question is about the shape of the structures. My question is about the shape of the structures. I realize you people adopted uh, non-individual walls, which is the advantage of the bit of the structure. Yet, if you realize Ugandan construction is more linear walls and this is, this is what people used to say. At what disadvantage are the Ugandans who like the linear walls at 
Well, I must say that if you have a roof over that is uh, holding these walls, um, I, I don't think the shape should be a limiting factor. For us, we are almost trying to build a perimeter wall, and that's, that's why, structurally speaking, the shape was very interesting for, for structural stability. Uh, but I think if you have if a roof frame tying all this together, you can you can easily build linear walls without worrying about anything. When we did our research on earthback technology, we, you know, there's a number of buildings you come across that uh, don't show you wouldn't you wouldn't tell that they're made of earthbacks. They are rectangular buildings, contemporary architecture, plastered and finished. Um, <clears throat> So the only distinguishing uh, um, sign is that the walls are very, very thick, which is of course climatically a wonderful feature um, of a building. Um, hello, so I wanted to ask, is there a minimum thickness of the wall required? You know how we're used to the 230? When I'm guessing since here you're used to, uh, we're using sand and you need uh, a required weight sort of keep the wall standing so does that make the wall thick and within that take more space okay i'm trying to see what you know most of the time like you want to ask use earth and you want to create uh build the house in the slum you know there's little space and stuff and guys want to use this because yeah, it can involve them so is there a minimum thickness i would say that uh there's no minimum thickness as per se um, even the 230 you're saying is really not a minimum thickness, but for practical reasons of compaction in situ and stuff, you are really not going to do a wall thinner than 300. Yeah, for practical reasons. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in to our first Local Talks podcast episode. We hope you learned a thing or two about building with earthbags. For more information about these talks, do head over to the Local Works website or subscribe to our mailing list. Both these links are in the show notes. Do share this episode and subscribe to our podcast.